My grandmother would not charge above 425 for rent. I asked her one day, why do you keep rent so low? And she said, you know, my house is paid off. I've been a mom. There's absolutely no reason in the world that people should have to work that hard so that they can ensure they have a safe place to live. That level of understanding who people are and understanding I actually know your grandmother or your mother who's suffering with something and I can give you a little grace around your rent. How do we get back to a space where we see each other as people and not just a commodity, but there's also a level of compassion, um, empathy and like building community together that doesn't have to be commodified. here today on Conversations with Shonda and I decided I wanted to talk to my sister. So I'm here with my sister who um, also runs a local nonprofit that works in housing and organizing. And so I'm going to have her just jump in and introduce herself to our listeners. Hello, sister. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I'm super excited. My name is Shannon Smith-Jones. I'm also the sister of Shonda Smith-Baker. I run a nonprofit in South Minneapolis called Hope Community, which is a nonprofit organization located in the Phillips community in South Minneapolis that has been around for 43 years. Um, and it started out as a homeless shelter and has since evolved into a housing organization that does community building, community listening sessions, youth development, food justice work, um, and I think I said leadership development with you. Um, we have a Best Buy Teen Technology Center that's been around for two years that is doing amazing work. And I'm super excited to be here today because um, I think with this pandemic that we're dealing with right now, there's a whole lot of things that are impacting and we understand that things are like super domino effect that's happening. And I think it's like a perfect time for me to come on here. So I'm super excited. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to have you on here um, is actually to talk about leading through COVID. Um, mm -hmm. I know what it feels like to lead a nonprofit anyway, and it's not for the weak or the weary. But before we, before we go there, you know, you got involved in um, housing. Yeah. And um, I'm curious to know how you arrived at that particular issue area. Oh, I think um, very interesting. So very many, many years ago, I think right before the market crashed, actually 2007, I had worked with GMAC RFC for several years, which did mortgages, but also um, I did some property management type work in that space. And housing has always been kind of a backdrop, something that I felt drawn to. I think my personal experience um, has really added to that. Um, as a um, newly single mom, being young with two young boys, I found myself back at home with my mother, which is nothing that you ever really want to do, um, but very grateful that I had a mom's house to go to that was welcoming, that was safe and healthy. And I actually had the opportunity of living in Hope Community for a year, which um, is really a privilege to be in a space that was so instrumental to me. I think um, housing really became more of a thing because what I recognized in that moment was the stability factor that I grew up in a home 
that was always there where I didn't move. I wanted to provide that for my children, but also having something where I wasn't so concerned about how I was going to pay my rent every month that I could still continue to build and do other things that I was passionate about. So having affordable housing or something that I could manage with my job and still raise my kids and go back to school and do all those, all of those things was an instrumental stabilizing force and building block for me to continue to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, so that's kind of how housing just kind of came into it when I've had opportunities to engage in the field, I hopped, I hopped on those. So aside from just basic drive, do you think that you would have completed your degree in the timeline you did without having the housing support that you had from Hope? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think, you know, Hope, Hope was a building block in that. And then I was actually um, had the um, opportunity to live in a duplex that my grandmother owned that also a, a provided stabilizing housing. I would love to dig in that a little bit later if, if that makes sense to do so. But there's absolutely no way that I would have had the ability of doing that. I was working three, almost four jobs at times. So I was working at GMAC. I was working at Pillsbury United Community on the weekends. I was working for the Cultural Wellness Center. And then I had like these two other little side gigs that I would do around um, some apartment things, as well as I would engage in some survey things to get paid. So I was doing all of those things in order to get ends to meet. And there's no way I could have did all of those things, work a full-time job, raise kids and go to school. Like there's no way that I would have been able to do that without having somewhere that I could go that um, I could continue to grow and explore other opportunities in. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about grandmas for a minute. So, you know, she passed away when? Can't Four remember years what year. ago. Four years ago. It's interesting, or it's a gift, I guess, to think about all the lessons that she gave. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I ever thought about her approach. And I wonder how much she knew it was approach um, to how she treated her house and her property. Can you talk about that? You have a great way of describing our grandma and her, her, her intention. Oh, it's just weird. I just got all the goosebumps. Cause like, I think grandma just showed us. Yeah. Um, grandma was the original OG of naturally occurring affordable housing. Like she created that. My grandmother would not charge above 425 for rent. And I remember asking her and I actually remember when I was looking for housing before I, I moved into Hope, I'm like, grandma, can't you kick them people out and let your granddaughter live there? And she was like, absolutely not. I will not do that. But when it opened up, she's like, come, come on over here and do that. But I asked her one day, why do you keep rent so low? And she said, you know, my house has paid off. I've been a mom. There's absolutely no reason in the world that people should have to work that hard so that they can ensure they have a safe place to live. Nobody will be paying a ton of rent under my watch. Like that's not going to happen. And what it did is it actually made me reflect on the stories that I've heard my dad talk about and our uncles and our aunt, because the people that my dad grew up with and our family grew up with are still instrumental people in their lives now. I mean, and they're in their seventies now, but this was a community of people 
and in the in the central neighborhood where there are many duplexes where this was a way of being in community with one another and what that did was that level of presence that level of understanding who people are and understanding i actually know your grandmother or your mother who's suffering with something and i can give you a little grace around your rent and we can have a conversation with that or i know you're struggling so we can bring you a meal or you know, we all have all these stories about how people watched each other's kids and things like that. And to me, it's so all encompassing of what community is. And I actually think it's so intrinsic to who we are and maybe what, what draws us to the work. Um, but to me, that's just amazing. How do we get back to a space where we see each other as people and not just a commodity and not, not something just to get rich off of? It does cost for housing, right? There's a true cost to it. Um, but there's also a level of compassion, um, empathy, and like building community together that doesn't have to be commodified. Yeah. So you lived at Hope. Matter of fact, you were one of the first residents that lived at Hope. You were the first resident that lived at Hope. You know, I remember that time period and Hope community was reaching out and, and looking for, um, you know, single parents and folks in community that could go there and build a community within hope. And so you were the first. The first um, in my apartment. I like the first one to move yeah, into the, the entire Yeah, the first in building. your apartment. And Children's Village, I think it was called. Yes, Children's Village. Um, and so now you're, you're leading an organization that you were the first resident. Your office is in the actual building in which you were the first resident. How does, how does that feel? And um, do you feel like that lends you credibility or does it bring you too close? Is there a thing that's too close? I don't know. I don't know if it, I think there's moments where it lends credibility. I also think like it embodies hope. So if you don't mind me telling just like a brief story of how all this happened. This was a time I said I was living at my mom's and I literally was redoing my budget every single day. Like I need to get out my mom's house. I'm appreciative, but I'm grown. I have kids. I can't live here. Um, and so um, I had to take two days off of work because I did not take PTO and they were forcing me to take them because I didn't take PTO because if my kids got sick, I needed to have that space, you know, those things. And so I took two days off of work and I remember I got a call from my sister mm -hmm. and you <laughs> and my sister was like, you got to come down to Hope and look at this apartment. I and let me add this. I just got daycare assistance that Monday. Part of the problem was I could not pay for daycare and housing and a car. I couldn't pay for it all. It was either daycare or housing. So I just got noticed that I got daycare assistance on Monday. You call me on Thursday. I was chilling and you're like, meet me at Hope. And I'm like, mm. I was kind of he and and hot. And you, you like did a big sister thing and was like, get off your tail and meet me over there. And so I did. And so I came over there and we we're like, oh, this is beautiful, like hardwood floors. Like I'm so used to things that are deemed affordable or for working class people, not having craftsmanship, not having beauty, not using like good appliances and things like that. And it had it. It felt super dignified. And we were in there and I was like getting excited about it. But then I'm like, yo, I haven't been saving for a deposit. None of that. So I remember Brenda Reed was like, how much can you afford? And I was like, well, I could afford this. Like I just got daycare assistance, so I could afford it. I said, the problem is up until Monday, I couldn't 
because I didn't have daycare assistance. And so I have not planned in that way of having a deposit. So Brenda said, well, when can you pay? And I said, well, I think I can pay Thursday. I get paid Thursday. And Brenda said, I'll be right back. Brenda came back with a lease and said, how about this? How about we waive your first month's rent? You pay me on Thursday and we will hold that as a deposit. I signed a lease and I moved in the next day. Wow. Wow. I don't look even think I remember that story. I mean, look at God, right? Look, look at God. God. And, and, the, and the beauty of relationships. And I the think that, that's the part of it. And especially when you have um, organizations that are working with people. Yes. And not working a process. Yes. And it felt, I mean, I've had to go to the WIC office. I've had to go down to MFIP and food support and those things with moments in my life. Not long moments, but I've had to do that. And it's so undignified. You know, I remember going to the WIC office and they gave me a, a, a plastic bowl of peas and said, this is what healthy food looks like. I looked at that lady like, you think I don't know what peas look like? <laughs> you know, like it's so, it's dehumanizing all the time when these things happen and hope. I felt like I was a community member. I felt like part of a community. I did not feel less than. Um, and it was like, and it was so beautiful in there. And it, and to me, it was, it will always be a, like a pinnacle, pinnacle point in my life um, in terms of thinking about how hope showed up for me in that moment in my life. Yeah, I think I can say the same thing for Pillsbury United, right? When um, I came, right, we were going through a really similar sort of moment in life where I was, you know, with kids and trying to figure it out and what am I going to do next? And I applied for a position that required a degree. And I didn't have one. And, it, you know, there's a whole story around that. But Yvonne Olson, um, basically, you know, I'm like, look, like I'm in a moment of like sheer boldness, which, you know, it looks like boldness on the back end. It was like straight survival <laughs> in the moment was just like, do you want someone with a degree or do you want someone that can do the job? Like, you know, give me a call um, if you need someone that can do the job. I'm from here. I love this community. I can lead in this community. Um, if you want to take a chance on me, I'm here. And um, Pillsbury took a chance on me. And so I think that by doing that, um, it uh, really reinforced what I knew was in me in a time that felt like really unbearable in many ways, trying to figure out how to, how to keep all the balls in the air. Mm -hmm. So I realized that these moments are really important. Mm -hmm. And um, so now, you know, fast forward, the job comes open for you at Hope. And um, the former um, executive reaches out to you and says, what? I'm retiring. You should consider coming to Hope. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's so <cute>. nice. That's <laughs> yeah. so cute. And um, I, you know, and so I was already working in housing. I was working at Urban Homeworks at this point for about five years as the director of community engagement and had ongoing interactions with Hope through many people at Hope. And I knew it was time for me to do something different. I, I didn't think it was an executive director. And so I was looking for other things and was like really trying to avoid, I mean, probably actively at this point, I'm thinking, considering this position. And several people at Hope reached out to me. And as they tell it, I don't know if it's, as they tell it, none of them knew they were reaching out to me. And so I heard from three different people from Hope that were like, hey, you know, this opportunity is open. Hey, we should have coffee. And then I got an email that was like, just FYI, the job is open. 
And I, that last one like pushed me like, you know what, nothing's wrong with going through the process. Let's see what the process brings up. Um, this could be super exciting, um, working and leading in an organization that has been so important in my life. Um, and so let's, let's see what it looks like. And um, I went through the process and, and here, I, here I am. Mm-hmm. You know, here you are and you've been there for how long? Three years, it was three years in March. Three years. And so it takes a good year to just get used to being in the role, right? Like, even if you know what it means to live somewhere, like I knew what it meant to work at Pillsbury because I'd been there for 10 years. When you step in that seat, it is a whole new world. People will say, well, they should already know. No, you don't know until you sit in the seat. Um, so you had your sit in the seat moment. So it takes at least a year, right? Did it take you longer than that? Uh, I think it's progressive. Right. So it's, it's, it takes a good year for you to like, for the most part, know, know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> right. Like, right. oh, I'm supposed to do that. Oh, okay. I didn't know. And you, yeah. kind of, you know, and I need to pay attention to this. And there's so many things like we have a very complex organization. Um, we do housing, we do organizing, we do organizing training, we do youth leadership work. Um, the first week of my job, we had a site. I was just going to bring this up. I was just about to bring <laughs> the this up. The first week, um, another sidebar story. Keep me back on track after the story. Okay. Yep. First week of work, I'm like, holy crap. Like, oh my gosh. And I called my sister up and I said, we have a site visit tomorrow. And I'm trying to figure out like, how long is this site visit? And I'm talking and doing all this stuff. And I'm like, we have a site visit tomorrow. She's like, who's your site visit with? I'm like, Best Buy. And she goes, Hmm. And I'm like, what does that mean? She's like, so do we. And I was like, Hmm, <laughs> what time is yours? And hers was like at like four at four fifteen, and mine was at three. I'm like, Oh, thanks. I got an hour. And, and so, um, at this moment we're like, dang, we're in competition over this, <laughs> over this. And thing. I think Best Buy at that time, it said that they were only going to fund one organization. They did. They also told us not to say anything. So, you know, they'll have to forgive us. They'll have to forgive us for that. And so um, it was interesting because then that Friday I come home and I'm like laid out, like it's like the first week of work. And I remember just laying out on my bed. I didn't think anybody had my cell phone number. And I get a call from Jody Jonas from Best Buy. And I'm like answering the phone really off the cuff, like, hello, you know? And then she's like, "Um, Shannon? And I'm like, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is Jody. And I'm like, Oh, hey, Jody, how are you? She's like, I just want you to know that um, you got you, you got the RFP, we're going to do a Best Buy Teen Technology Center at your at your location. And I was like, what? Because this was the first Thursday site visit of my first week of work. And so then we had another awkward conversation afterwards, because I'm like, what you doing, sis? You're like, nothing. You're like, did you get a call today? I don't know. Did you get a call today? (laughs) (laughs) I did. And we both both ended up getting technology centers, which was super exciting. It was like for a first week of work. Yeah, it was like a a real sister uh, moment, because um, even uh, when they, when the Best Buy and I told them for they our segment. To well, I didn't know they knew, right? So they come <laughs> to my site visit. This is, you know, obviously when I was at Pillsbury United Communities, but they come to my site visit and they're like, we just left your sister. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you know, she's my sister. It was really, it was a really great um, week for me as well. And, um, you know, I can't imagine. We were kind of like the Serena sisters. What? Yeah, we were. <laughs> we, we had to play each other <laughs> in this competition. Um, but we both and, won. 
we both <laughs> whine and that doesn't always happen with them. But it was like yeah. one of those those moments. But anyway, so you come in and, you know, you had a great really first week. And I know that, you know, it's not so much even learning the job in the in the first year as much as it is making it your own, because you've got a lot of voices in your head and you have to get to a point where you find your own rhythm and your own leadership. And that takes a, a bit of time. Uh-huh. And so now you're in year three and you're hit with um, COVID, right? So I'm, I'm really just trying to set, set the scene. It's like you, you take a while to ramp up. You've had like a year of maybe um, finding your rhythm and your pace. And then now you're being confronted with, with um, something that's unprecedented. Did you feel like this moment came at a point where you were finding your rhythm? I would say finding my rhythm. I think we've been working through, I, so I think you're two and a half, somewhere in there, there's things where you start like getting your stride and you start really understanding the things that need to happen. And internally, we were beginning to have those really deep conversations of what does it look like for hope to be hope? What does it look like for hope to be hope in the future? How do we set this up so that this lives beyond us? You know, what's the legacy and how do we put like frameworks in place and things in place that no matter who's here, that it still has this hope essence because there's something about hope. There just is. There's an essence to it and you don't want to lose that. You want to honor that. Um, I think um, so. I think we were on on track to that. I think what this did was it heightened my need to be to tap into my strategy to be very decisive, to ask critical questions, to be a more bold in terms of like, I don't, I can't care what everybody thinks I might need to do, but I have to do what needs to be done. And I think when you talked about nobody knows what it's like to be in that seat until you're in that seat, part of it is that. And I think that's the very difficult part especially when we come from, you know, I always tell people we debate whether we're fourth generation or fifth generation, North side. Yeah, we do. We're no, not going right. to debate that today. No, because I'm right. But anyway, go ahead. whatever. But at any rate, we've been here for a long time and we've been in community for a really long time. And we've been around great leaders in terms of whether it's family members or other people around that. And so there's, there's pieces to that that get Um, dismissed or overlooked when you're in these spaces and there's complexities that I feel like we were we were socialized into at a very young age that might feel a little more intuitive because of that Mm -hmm. and I I think some of those things that we have and how we bring it to the work with keeping community at the center um, and knowing all of this wealth of information that we have um, I have to be decisive and I have to make a decision at times that might not be popular. And I think the difficult pieces, the thing that makes me most excited is when my community is proud of me. There's nothing other community and family. Like I could care less, not that I care less, but like those are the things that like bring tears to my eyes that, that make me excited is like when my community and my family are proud of the work that I'm doing. But it's also super challenging when they don't understand the complexities of what we're facing and then they dismiss you so quickly at times. And I think that's the personal piece that's difficult in times like this. But I think this moment has given me that ability of I have to be firm because there's too much at risk for me not to be. Right. 
so you had uh, Mary, who you followed, and I followed yeah. Tony Wagner. And, um, you know, I have stories for both of them in my head. But one of them that Tony would often say is, you know, leadership in this day and age is really different than leadership in his days. Not to say that it wasn't challenging, because I think these roles are just challenging. But the way that philanthropy works, a lot of ways in which things work have dramatically changed and a lot of things for for the better. Um, But it makes it harder. And Mm -hmm. Um, I could even say from the beginning of my tenure um, in my seven years that I was CEO to the end, there was a very, there was, um, it was very, very different. Like Black Lives Matter emerged, you know, it feels like the way that people in community bring voice, uh-huh. show um, their uh, commitment to community through protest. Uh-huh. Right. To, to say like, we're not tolerating this, like, no more like do that one more again to this community right like there there is um an understandable frustration that we sit in Mm -hmm. like we're not really separate from that but we have an organizational responsibility and so Mm -hmm. I say that because I'm watching um and I had staff that would come and like why do we have to do this why do we have to do that and it was it was difficult to juggle Mm -hmm. so I am watching and we have touched on this And, um, but I've talked to other people, right, in my role at the foundation of kind of the movement in COVID, which is completely understandable about um, uh, the the rent or the eviction moratorium. And um, when that came up, what I got at the foundation was flooded with phone calls from people that are running community development organizations or housing organizations that, you know, they're looking for pots of money to think about how do we subsidize that? Uh And, um, you know, I'm reaching out, you know, Deidre and Chad and other people that I know, Urban Homeworks and Common Bond, to say, what are the implications of this on your organization? And there's one thing to forgo rent um, and you can make an active decision. There's a reality that there's probably a number of people that are living in, um, in housing across the city of Minneapolis that have an inability to pay. Uh-huh. And, um, and there's also a real recognition that there are community-based housing organizations or housing, affordable housing across the city that's going to be impacted by people's inability to pay. So uh-huh. do you have um, anything to offer around um, kind of the broader context of what will happen to affordable housing? Like, you know, are you worried for us losing affordable housing units or what are things that we should consider? Oh, everybody should, everybody should be worried about losing affordable housing units. Everybody should be. Um, so uh, hope, so as the moment that I heard that this was happening, I made an internal decision that I said, nobody during this will get evicted even before the moratorium came out, right? Like we have to figure this out. What does this look like? this is those tensions, right? So if I wasn't running a housing organization, there's a cancel the rent campaign. And we've been in very deep, tense conversations around does hope sign on to this or not. Um, The ultimate goals of the campaign is something I 1000% align with, right? No displacement. We are already leading the country around disparities in housing. Um, So no accumulation of debt, right? If I'm not working for three, four, five months, 
I'm never going to be able to catch up on my rent bill. Like we understand that as, as a reality. Um, many people, even though we have reasonable rents, 75% um, of our housing is affordable at 50% area medium income and lower. So even within that, there's people that are cost burdened by their rent, right? And so there's this reality of what happens in our communities, what happens to the people. Um, I really struggle sometimes with conversations around housing because it starts out with bricks and mortar versus the people. And I'm really thinking about the people. And so as a resident, as a person, as a community member, I would be 100% on and cancel the rent, right? I would be on it. Like, we can't pay it. Where do you think we're going to get the money from? That stuff needs to be canceled. Yeah. And we've both been in the seats where if we were back where we were when we first described. Yes. And even some ways that. now, I mean, if something, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I would be yeah. there. I would be there. Yeah. Then I'm sat with the reality of what does council the rent look like without resources? Yeah. And so we went through a process of understanding what does that mean for hope? Um, we did a cost analysis. It cost $185,000 a month to run our housing. Those costs are a mixture of resident services if we have them. We do a reserves deposit so that if major things pop up that we actually have cash on hand to be responsive to that. Capital expenditures, if there needs to be a roof, if you need to do something with the piping, um, property and liability insurance, utilities, property taxes, management and administration, we have to pay the folks that are cleaning the buildings right now. Like that is so important right now. We have is, is it actually more costly to clean the buildings now or is it consistent? Um, I wouldn't are you say putting necessarily in? more costly, but we actually went above and beyond and got an entire crew over at Hope after um, we closed down to do a, we had a crew. So not just like the one or two people that usually come through and do a thorough dis disinfecting of all community spaces. Um, and we will do that again. And, you know, as things slowly open and we might have to, there's going to be an additional cost above and beyond what we normally do. Um, and then the maintenance and operating, like there has to be a leasing agent. There has to be a maintenance person that can come unplug your toilet. There has to be those things. And that $185,000 a month pays for that. Um, mm -hmm. This is, these are the costs that happen without even a mortgage. Right. right? That's right. You know, and then there's, if you have a recurring mortgage on it, that increases the cost, but still the majority of the costs are the costs just to operationalize it. Mm -hmm. So I had to break that down, $185,000 a month. We have a $1.9 million budget thereabouts. Um, what that means monthly is that's $165,000 a month. That means no staff. That means no program. That means nothing. And we'd still have to raise an additional $20,000 just to continue to give dignified housing to the- A people. month or? A month. We would okay. have to raise an additional $20,000 a month mm -hmm. just to keep the dignified housing going. And so to me, that was the risk, you know, the thing that we're talking about. And while I align in heart and spirit and everything that people are saying that the poor people are continually Marginalized folks are continually bearing the burden of when things don't work well. 
um, and that other people need to be, have some responsibilities for the inequities that we're working with. Mm -hmm. The reality today is that I'm holding these things in tension and we can't just do that without resources to, yeah. you know. But to, what I'm finding is interesting because, you know, I often will get multiple calls um, from within organizations. So you have, you know, to your point is like you, you hear those tensions that are being represented and, you know, there's lots of conversations on our end about how do you help? And we're not even talking about homeless population at this point, which is a whole nother sort of uh, area of, of housing or lack of housing that we can go into. How are you preparing in the case that you have a significant number of your residents unable to pay rent? Oh, um, and are you working in a coalition of people that are thinking this through with you? Yes. So we're, I mean, we sit at several tables. Um, we are working with a, a organizing table, Equity in Place. Inkle Needles is really working on Council the Rent, and we're talking with them, even though we might not be able to ascribe to the entire essence of what they're doing. We definitely ascribe to the work and the people that are attached to that. And so we're, we're, we're still having difficult conversations around that internally. But in addition to that, one of the things I'm like, we have to create we have to make sure our house, house is okay, right? So what does this look like? We have this broad conversation that's happening regionally that I care about the communities of which we live in. And then we have the house. We have Hope Community and the close to 300 units of housing, the 700 and something individuals that live there that are a part of our immediate community that we're like, what do we do about home? And mm -hmm. so part of our fundraising strategy right now is how do we get dollars in the door that we can have at Hope that says, you know what, you know, Joe Smith, um, we know you're not working and we know that you cannot pay your rent. And what we will do is we will, um, we have this pot of money that will be a rent relief so that you don't have to worry about that debt and that we can internally do a cancel the rent if we want, if want to call it that or rent relief internally so that we can ensure you know and one of the key things that hope does is around placekeeping anti-gentrification ensuring that people in the communities can live in the communities that they choose to and to us that is core to who we are and we can do all these other things concurrently and have these other conversations of figuring out what does it look like to write legislation that that talks about council the rent with resources we can talk mm -hmm. about all these other strategies that are happening and support them, work with them, write with them, collaborate together. But also we need to see like, I don't know if those things are gonna happen, but what I can do is I can say, hey, here, this is what we're doing here. And these are the way that we wanna take care of our community members. Yeah. You know, now, you know, I've got, I started out in this conversation with kind of like sister hat on in my podcast. And now I'm going to like straight funder and thinking about yes. just really the, the tensions that exist within that you feel are tensions that I feel within philanthropy. And I guess if you could, I mean, I suppose I've asked other guests this is, you know, what should philanthropy be thinking about relative to this issue? Because those, both of those things make sense you know, on face value, let's cancel the rent and let's get a pot of money for rent relief. Um, it doesn't feel like it's quite as simple as that. But are there other, what, what should we be thinking through? Or are there questions that you think we should be asking ourselves in philanthropy? Um, so I tend to be a little more radical than my sister. 
Um, so I it depends think on the issue, right? It does. It does. It does. <laughs> it does depend on the issue. Um, so I think there's uh, several things. I think that um, there is some level of truth of understanding that foundations give a portion of their money and not beyond a certain portion in some instances, right? Not all instances, but there is this perceived notion of that. And that's so wait, pause there. So, yes. um, so most foundations pay out of 5% yes. annually. And what mm -hmm. you're saying is a perceived notion is that we're hoarding. Yep. We're hoarding money. <laughs> yep. Yep. You're hoarding okay. money. Okay. That there's people that are hungry. There are people that need to be housed and you have resources that can address that. And when does it, when does a foundation get radical and change something to say, look, we are saying we want to do these things. And, and I, and I've actually seen foundations show up in a really real way of being really responsive, but what does it look like to dig deeper, to really talk about this? We also know that we live in a state where the inequities are across racial lines, whether it's prison, whether it's housing, whether it's education, and that is a systemic issue. What this will do is it will create a further divide in terms of what that looks like. And do we want to be part of that, that narrative of the history? What do we do to talk about the systems that have marginalized low-income people of color for, from the beginning of time? And what can we do that is radical enough to start readdressing these things? We're seeing mm -hmm. it show up in education, right? I can yeah. talk to a friend of mine in Blaine whose five-year-old already had a tablet, already knowing how to engage um, online. And then you have middle school kids that have no idea how to engage on this platform that are in different schools that are more, um, that represent more incomes of, of you know, low income mm -hmm. and communities of color. There is a disparity so, that's clear. Yeah. Well, wait, hold on. Let me process for a second. <laughs> Um, because I think that what, what I hear you saying is number one, like really look at your policies in terms of paying out, like, can you dig deeper and get more money in, right? Like I sit at a seat where like not all foundations operate the same way we're a community foundation. So we have a lot of donor advisors mm -hmm. and they are really doing a, a wonderful job of getting more dollars out the door. We yes. function a little bit differently. Um, but I, but nonetheless, your point stands. And then what I also hear is there's an opportunity in this moment to actually do some reflection on what are the historical inequities or, or ways in which philanthropy has shown up that maybe has been complicit or maybe the thinking hasn't been um, deep enough to um, think about uh, how we've gotten to these deep disparities. And here is an extreme moment for us to think about how do we not deepen them and, and not just not go backwards, but how do we deepen them and really be thoughtful about addressing them moving forward? Is that right. a good? That is a very good analysis. And I okay. think about this. I think about, we were just talking about how laptops are getting dropped off. We've been advocating for laptops for kids in Minneapolis public schools for years. This happens and all of a sudden you can do it, right? We've been talking about letting out um, nonviolent offenders out of prisons for years and all of a sudden you can do it. So all of a sudden there's these things that we have been advocating for for a long time that deepen disparities that people are showing them that we can actually do it. I think foundations hold a lot of power and not just power in money but power in position, 
power and influence, and they have an ability of being able to move an agenda that can be complementary to what people on the ground are saying and doing. And how do you leverage those positions of power? How do you leverage your social capital? How do you, you know, how do you do those things in a time like that where communities like, yo, we're actually together in this. Because if my neighbor's not doing well, we're really not doing well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there, so you have like these embedded um, tensions and you have them. I mean, I had them at Pillsbury even outside of COVID. Yeah. Right. Um, whether or not it was um, about a police shooting and people wanted us to handle one way or another or the Dakota pipeline, people wanted us to handle one way or another. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's been these these things that have been happening. And I think that's one level of the work in terms of managing the expectations, especially when you're a community based organization. Um, they want you to 100 percent be down for the people. Right. Is what you said. And yeah. It's very difficult as a leader of an organization because you have organizational considerations. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, man, I don't want to, after 140 years of Pillsbury, I don't want to be the one <laughs> that, that, that takes it down, right? And so you have these tremendous pressures. So on top of just maybe the pressures of the moment, right? The movement that says, let's forego rent. Um, and the reality also that people are going to be unable to pay rent. Are there other sort of um, things that you're faced with right now when your leadership relative to COVID-19 that feel different than before this was a thing? I don't know if I would say different, but heightened. How so? What I would recognize in this space as being a Black woman running an organization is, is not the norm. What does that mean? It's, it's not common. I I might be the only black woman leading a housing organization in the at least Twin Cities. I know there are other women. There are things that I know that I could say or do that would be uh, challenged, whereas if I was a white man or a white woman would not be challenged. I also know that if I don't do this well, and something fails that I hold the responsibility of that's why you don't have black women in positions of power. Do you think that's real or do you think that's perceived? There might be a mixture, right? Yeah. there There might be a mixture of it. So like, I think in community, we have people that are like, yo, you're one of us. You should go in there and just blow it up. Like, that's what I expect you to do. We go in there and we see the landscape and you're like, actually, as much as I want to blow it up, I can't because there's all the, if I blow this up, some of the unintended consequences actually are worse than, than this. And as much as you, you want to share some of those things, it might not always translate. I also do know that, and I have watched, you've seen, like there's things that people can do in positions of power that could be laughable or like dismissed or, oh, he just had a hiccup. Whereas our hiccups aren't hiccups, they're detrimental. Right. So if there's something, if a misstep as a leader of color is not a misstep, it's a misstep and it can be very critical to your leadership in terms of how people see you, how they engage with you, whether or not they want to continue to fund you, like all of these things. And so the, um, you know, we kind of talked about that um, operational, like small gap of being able to like raise money with housing. That's what I feel like we have very little equity in between that space of making missteps. Mm. before we get challenged into a place of 
without the support, without, you know, all these other things in place, because those are, those things happen as well. It's not like this dire story of where like something happens and we just fall. That's not what I'm saying. But I also think that the challenges at these times, we are carrying the weight of the work that we're doing. We're also carrying the weight of my first week at Hope. I can't tell you how many inboxes I got about people who wanted a job. I can't tell you how many times I get called about people like, hey, can you just move me to the front of the list of housing? We're from the communities. People know we're resources. And there's certain things where it's like, well, then you're not real. But So how do we balance all of that? And I think that's something. And can you mentor? Can you mentor this person? Can you do this? I think the expectations of us are a little different. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it's like to be someone other than me. So I don't know what those expectations look like. I just know it, it feels like it's the expectations are a little more heavy. You know, again, Tony, Tony Wagner's story I'll share because um, he's one of my, um, I just have so much respect and admiration for him. And I um, preceded him at Pillsbury and uh, white male. He was, you know, a generation, he was my, you know, our parents age. Um, He had been in in the organization for a long time. And I remember us talking um, during the leadership transition because once that was announced, there were so many groups saying, come and talk to our girls. You know, what is it like to be a black woman in leadership? Can you come um, talk about all these things? And um, there's even, uh, Mindy Hart has a great book out. Um, There's other articles that have come out about what does it mean to be a woman in leadership? And how do you build a team around a woman in leadership where they are um, the center of their family, they're the center sometimes of not, not the center of community, but you're centered in community and you have expectations of your community, right? There's a lot to, there's a lot to hold. And in most cases or a lot of cases, um, we are ascending into roles that we haven't had anyone in our families have before. And so it is, it's a lot, it's a lot to hold. And, um, and you're holding it often without a, a place to talk about it that feels um, comfortable and um, and you know the leadership is, is it can be very unforgiving because like basically no like people don't really care <laughs> um, but there are those differences and so you know I guess as your sister I'm acknowledging the experience and um, as a sister in the work I feel like we are often I just thought of her <laughs> I just thought of I her. thought about Kim <laughs> <laughs> I thought about Kim not sister with an ER but sister with an A um, <laughs> Uh, as as a sister in the work, um, you know, I think about how many conversations we have with with black women um, that are leading, or women of color that are leading, or frankly, shoot, women that are leading. But they're 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 slightly different conversations along the way. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, let's just baseline. Like right now, it's not easy for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are these um, very nuanced, very different conversations um, around this, and. Do you think or do you see this um, improving as there are more leaders of color coming into leadership of organizations and management and into roles in philanthropy? Do you see this evolving or do you think that there's going to be kind of this continued weight and exception? Mm. I think it depends on how spaces are preparing to allow women of color to lead. 
people don't stay in the spaces because of the difficulties that they face there. And so if you're not supported in an organization and you go there and you're getting microaggressions at every step of the way, if you are being dismissed, if someone can take what you said and reframe it and somehow they take what they say as gold when you've been saying it five times already and it took somebody of, of a, a different complexion to say it for it to be valid, if the, the things that you say you want to do because everybody's talking about equity, everybody's talking about DEI, everybody's talking about it. And then we come into the space and we're like, this is actually what it looks like. And you're like, oh, we want to do it, but not like that. Like yeah. we're not ready for that. And so if we're incapable of taking the brilliance that we have, the knowledge that we have of being acknowledged and being able to put it to work, then we won't mm -hmm. stay there. Yeah, I remember being fortitude um, to stay in those spaces because it is oppressive. Mm. It is oppressive to work in these spaces. I remember having a conversation with maybe a group of 30 or 35 leaders of color in philanthropy. And I remember asking what percent of them show up every day? Like, can you show up as yourself? And, um, and so there was like, you know, I can see you shaking your head. Um, folks online can't hear, you know, see it, but you're shaking your head, right? And, um, but I think, um, I remember maybe one or two people rose, you know, raised their hands and they were working in a culturally specific organization. Um, you know, well, do you think you're bringing 80%, like no hands, you know, 50% hands went up. Like, it doesn't mean that they're not bringing great work every day. It means that they're editing where it could have gone. And there's some pretty amazing work happening out of our foundations right now, collectively. And I can only imagine how much better it would be, how much more impact we would have if we took the time to, um, to harvest the leadership, the ideas, um, the brilliance of the diversity of people sitting at the table with lived experience. And I am seeing that as a shift too, right? Is that you were trained to go to work, you go to work, to go to work, and you stay at home and you, you hang out with your friends. They don't really go together. And we're in a place in leadership now where they actually do go together and that people actually want to be, I mean, you know, like, I don't want to know all your business, but I feel like there's, um, there's a place where people actually want to bring their values and their commitments and their experiences to the table in ways that maybe you were not um, mentored or coached to do in previous generations. Do you agree with that or no? Well, certainly we were, we were told do not make friends at work. I have a story. I have another story. I'm good with the okay. stories, right? Does it involve me? <laughs> no. Okay, good. Uh, okay. This involves my, my former, um, director when I worked at a different organization and we would go to do happy hour and then you know you get a little I get a little taste of something I already talk a lot I'm already not that filtered and so then I would have anxiety the next day because I'm like I'm gonna lose my job we don't have spaces to be able to have drunken moments and not that I was a drunken <laughs> I'm like, wait, were you drunk? like let me correct myself but just that tipsiness of where you're a little less filtered where you're a little less um, bringing more of 100% of yourself to that space and bringing 100% of yourself in that space was never safe, right? Yeah. And so I remember having a conversation with him 
because I had like this anxiety, like we had like, and I'm like, you know, I get to talking too much. And so I called him like, I got to meet with you right now. And he was like, okay. So like we met and I'm like, we can't have like these little like informal moments like this because I'm uncomfortable. Like I'm worried about my job. Like he was like, are you serious right now? And he was like, you bring too much to the table. You're smart. You're all these things. When we're having this, I'm not counting that against your, like, that's not even a, like in his mind, it wasn't even a thing, but we were socialized that you don't mix the two. Yeah. And I think it's not safe to necessarily do it. Um, And I think for me, that was a thing of like, how do I bring, and there's other things just real quick. I think there's other things that we consider when we go out. I am a natural hair person. I will wear a like black pride earrings. I got a black excellence t-shirt on today, but I actually, and that's who I am. That's hundred percent of Shannon. But depending on the meeting that I have to go to, I have to filter out some of those pieces because I need people to not want to have a conversation about my hair. I need to not want to talk about these other things. And people might not take me as seriously, depending on what's happening with my hair, what earrings I'm wearing, or the shirt. And so I think those are things that other people may not have to consider when you talk about how do I bring 100% Mm -hmm. of myself into the space. Yeah. And I mean, the podcast that I had with Caroline Wanga, um, where she talks about being like who you are is non-negotiable. Love her. I know, right? Just so much love and just this whole transformation to being able to represent who you are culturally at work and creating space for it. Yeah. I think it's a real thing. And I think, you know, regardless if it's the bar or not, and, um, you know, I kind of, we've had this conversation in the past, but I think the point is, um, or what I'm reading from it too, is that, you know, that basically we're going in um, with kind of an armor right? Like we're protecting ourselves from things real or perceived that we experience in the workplace. And um, we need to be socially and emotionally smart and intelligent. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, But that when you get to a place of comfort and you let that down, there's a fear of exposure because we haven't operated with that level of freedom. Yes. Yeah. And when we have operated with that level of freedoms, there are people that have violated that. Then there's that. Right. Not everybody, but there are people that have violated that. Yeah. Before we close, I'm wondering, um, so we've talked a lot about kind of your leadership journey, and then we've talked a little bit about COVID. COVID is is causing all of our organizations to rethink ourselves. And um, you mentioned earlier around the schools and the laptops. I mean, you know, the the healthcare system on top of the crisis is now moving to telehealth. Um, you know, it, it's making us advance more quickly than um, what would feel comfortable under normal circumstances. And, you know, I hope that we can continue to um, uh, be part of an evolving conversation at the Minneapolis Foundation with folks that are leading out in community. You know, if there's anything, I know we talked about, you know, philanthropy reaching deeper into their, their coffers and questions, but if there's any last comments that you would want to make around what philanthropy should be thinking about in this moment or something that if someone was a donor or if you're at a strategic table, you know, are there things that you would recommend that they think about, ask about, or act on? Um, Housing is a human right. No matter how much money you get should not determine whether you're housed or not. 
housing is a public health issue and we need to reframe it as such. And COVID, and it really started out as that, if you do some of the history on it, it started out as that because when people don't have a place to be housed, disease, all these other things can happen and we're asking people to stay in place. And if they can't stay in place because they don't have a place, it's a public health issue. Um, I think that we need to push on legislation and things like that, that really are putting people um, at the center who may not have the same opportunities that everybody else does. Um, this is a time to really put your money where your mouth is. If you care about these things, and, and, and I'm saying that in a very like, you know, like whether it's actions or dollars or whatever that is, whether it's your social capital, but if you care about housing, you need to understand that if I say, you know, we'd be losing $500,000 if we lose 50% of our income over nine months. We only and that have income to, meaning like rental income or? Rental income, rental income, five, close to $500,000. That's and what does that translate into? Does that translate into an organization being closed down? Does that translate into, I mean, I can already anticipate that translates into layoffs, but what? It translates into layoffs long-term. It translates into um, 2008 when you had for-profit developers coming in and buying up properties and raising rent. It, it transfers into a um, dismantling and a shrinking of, the already under-numbered affordable housing units that are already available. It translates into a whole lot of things that are going to have a disparate impact mm -hmm. on communities of color and low-income people. And people so, could come in and buy up because people are going to, their businesses and organizations yes. will go under, right? Um, Correct. Is that what you're suggesting? That's, okay. That is what I'm saying. And not only that, but like nobody really looks at like small scale when a single family home duplex, triplex, fourplex. I drove past a house the other day that says, um, so, um, house for sale, no banks, right? So at this time, the vultures start coming around. What you're going to do is you're going to get people who are offering cash for houses for people who have, who have been in this community that are so afraid of not having a place to live. And this is how generational wealth is killed, right? This is how these things are done. And I mean, we could have a whole other thing about what happens when, you know, seniors happen and all these things, but there's all these things that are put in place that stop generational wealth and an ability to leave a legacy to our families and stay in community when moments like this happen. And so the reality is we already don't have, there's already a disproportionate amount of people in this community that are cost burdened before this. Um, this is a public health issue we need to collectively come together. Um, if the less of us aren't doing well, none of us are. Yeah. We are in this together. And, you know, my, um, my life is dependent on someone else doing well in a really big way to me. Like I can't live comfortably every day knowing that there might be someone in our building that might not be able to live there because they lost a job. Right. And any last, um, any advice for any young woman that is um, hoping to ascend into a role of leadership, which you and I both know is not just positional, but into a role of leadership and full voice. Do you have any advice for her? Um, 
get your squad together. <laughs> get your squad together. You are going to need to have people that represent different cultures, different genders um, that you trust. You're going to have to have a collective of women around you that can come around you and that can encourage you and that can remind you that you are bomb, that you're doing that. This is, this is normal, even though it shouldn't be and help you push through it because there are moments every day that you want to throw the hat in. This is exhausting. We're still mothers. We're still daughters. We still are leaders within our families and we have all of these other obligations. And then when you get to a place where they're like, Hey, we want you to be in leadership and you get there and that stuff gets super heavy. It can be discouraging. And so like collectively we can do it, but we have to support one another and you need to find who those people are that are going to like give you strategy that are going to listen, that are going to encourage you that are going to allow you to vent and cuss and, you know, like do all the things that you have to do to get it out, help you process it, help you pull it back together and be like, all right, sis, you got this. We got your back. What do you need? And we're here for you. And so like, we definitely can do it. And I think collectively we're super dope. We're super strong. We've always been leaders in community. If you go all the way back in history, like since we got to this joint and, and you, we can do that. So like you get the right support system around you, you get some, some riders with you um, with, you know, lack of some professional dictation there. <laughs> But like you, you can do this and we're here for you and we want to usher you into this and we're here for you to be able to do that. Yeah, and so, yeah. take the competition out. Like we need we need more more women in, more people in. I, you know, get the squad together is like the best advice ever. I mean, there's times where all I have to do is send an emoji and they'd be like, where and when? Like, we got you. What's going on? What time are we meeting? Where are we going to be at? And that is invaluable and to be able to just say it uncensored half the time it's you know it's mostly true <laughs> right like you know there are days where it's like the the issue might be bigger because of whatever you're feeling in the moment but to have people that have the experience that are able to walk you back and say let's let's look at this while you're laughing while they're validating you while they're pushing you um and supporting you um is an absolute requirement and you know what you what you know believe it do it dream it grab it right so have it you're here and you can do it and we've already been doing it we've been carrying things for years we already have it in us and so now it's just a matter of just like you know ante up bring it together get your squad together and if you got people together that are supporting you and can kind of talk you through it allow you to vent help you separate what's real and what's your emotion? How do you get the emotion out of the way so you can be strategic about it um, and be smart about it um, and, still, and still validate that that's real and not yeah. be dismissive of it because the things that we're feeling are real, they're valid and that you need a place where someone can validate like this happened and I know it happened because of who I am and how I look in the world and my social location. And to have people that validate the parts of us is super important so that we can understand that and continue to do the work. Right. Right on. Thank you for uh, listening today with my sister, Shannon Smith Jones. It's been a pleasure. If you want to give, 
www.hopecommunity-org. <laughs> like we will, we will link, we hope. will link your organization. Yes, and, yes, honey. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we, and you know, this whole thing around a rental pot is is real. So anyway, yeah. take it easy. I'm glad that you um, decided to join me in this conversation, and I will see you in like five minutes. Thanks, sis. All right, bye. Bye. To listen to more episodes and learn about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.